journalism is to question the prevailing wisdom. Question the prevailing wisdom. Just speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. All rights reserved and affirmed. Free all minds. These are weapons of mass These descent. These are weapons of mass descent. Welcome to Uprising, a daily digest of independent news analysis, investigation, education, artistic expression, and activism. It's Friday, August 5th, 2011, and I'm your host, Sonali Kohatkar. It just makes me stop and think. 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 Stop and think. Silence is not an option. Why we get fat and what to do about it. A follow-up to our popular interview with Gary Tobbs and this week's edition of Rethink Reviews. Sorry if my eyes drop when the bellow meadows out, but I can't help myself why should I? This is Uprising. A new study by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine on the effects of a low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet on heart health confirmed the increasingly popular notion that dietary fat intake does not increase the risk of heart disease. The study was conducted on 46 people trying to lose weight. They were split into two groups, one on a conventional low-fat diet and the other on a low-carb, high-fat diet. The 23 participants in the latter group dropped an average of 10 pounds in 45 days and showed no key changes in measures of vascular health. The lead investigator of the study, Carrie Stewart, is a professor of medicine and director of clinical research and exercise physiology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and its Heart and Vascular Institute. According to Carrie, quote, our study should help allay the concerns that many people have about choosing a low-carb diet instead of a low-fat one. A study by the Brookings Institution last year found that nearly one-third of American adults are obese and another third are overweight. But after decades of the conventional wisdom on eating healthy hasn't worked, low-fat, high-carb diets are being seriously questioned. Even the government's own recommendations on daily food intake has been adjusted to include less grains and sugary drinks. Earlier this year, an interview we did with health journalist Gary Taubes on his book, Why We Get Fat and What to Do About It, dug deep into the science of what makes people obese. That interview was rated highest by our online listeners on our website, and today we bring back Gary Tobbs for a follow-up interview while he's in town for a UCLA conference called Ancestral Health. Gary Tobbs is an award-winning science journalist, contributing correspondent for Science Magazine. He's a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation investigator in health policy research at the University of California Berkeley School of Public Health, and his earlier highly acclaimed book is Good Calories, Bad Calories. Welcome back to Uprising, Gary. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, before we get started, I wanted to let our listeners know that we want to take your questions today. You can find Uprising Radio on Facebook and post a question for Gary on our wall, and we'll try to squeeze as many of them in our interview as we can. Well, since we last talked to you, as I mentioned, uh, your interview has gotten a lot of play on our website, and clearly this is an issue that affects so many Americans that a program on public affairs has to include, I think, um, this issue of the reasons why obesity uh, is at such high levels and why it's not going down. Let me first ask you, uh, since we talked, the government has changed its recommendations, as I'd mentioned, 
from the food pyramid, where the bottom of the pyramid had been grains and carbohydrates, meaning it was recommending that the largest mm. portion that people would eat should be grains and carbohydrates. And now it's a plate. My plate is, is what it is, and, and about a quarter of it is grains. Is this, in your mind, progress? Uh, n- not as much as it is in the minds of the, <laughs> the, the administration that created the plate. Um, it's still a high-carbohydrate uh, meal. They're still playing down dietary fat. They're still, you know, pushing. For, for people who are overweight and obese, uh, I'm not sure how much of a, a favorite is telling them they can eat a lot of fruit. Um, so, you know, I guess it's progress, but what would make a difference in obesity rates? I very much doubt it. Okay, so let's take a step back and summarize um, the the book's uh, findings. You looked at the science. For those of our listeners who didn't hear our May 31st interview with Gary, you looked at the science, the decades of research, the historical data as well on obesity rates. Um, one of the surprising things was that obesity is not a new phenomenon. We always think of it as a new phenomenon, but you found that it existed everywhere where Western diets were introduced. And uh, when, when and that's not something that people argue with. However, the culprit is often meat rather than sugar or, or carbs. Well, not just meat. It's uh, energy-dense foods in which meat falls into that category or high-fat foods in which meat can fall into that category or sedentary behavior. So the conventional wisdom is populations go through what they call nutrition transition and they go from whatever their traditional diets were to eating a Western diet, and it's full of, yeah, animal products and dairy and uh, energy-dense foods, and they get sedentary, and they just eat too much, and things taste too good, and that's why they get fat. And the argument that I make and based on my research is that the very obvious, what really happens in a nutrition transition is populations add sugar and white flour to whatever it is they were eating. So they could have been complete carnivores like the Inuit or the Plains, you know, the Native Americans of the Great Plains or the Maasai, the pastoralists in Africa. They could have been agrarian populations. We're talking 19th century populations that didn't have the chronic diseases that we get today. They didn't have obesity or diabetes or cancer, hard as that is for people to believe. And the data were pretty good. I mean, these people, you know, there were concerted efforts to find cancer in these populations. And then they start eating Western diets, which is sugar and flour, and then all these diseases start showing up. You know, it takes a while, 20, 30 years, and you start seeing obesity first and then heart disease and then cancer. So the argument that I'm making in these books is, you know, that these are the sort of obvious culprits for the diseases that we suffer from. And that, indeed, the latest science of the past 20 years completely backs that up. And when you do randomized controlled trials, like you were talking about out of Hopkins, and you randomize people to basically a diet with or without these carbohydrates, um, they're going to do better on the diet without them because it's the carbohydrates, these refined, easily digestible carbohydrates and sugars that that cause the problem. Well, there was another Johns Hopkins study on Chinese health, which was pretty striking. Obesity is on the rise among children in China. That's not striking. Mm -hmm. But there was uh, data um, uh, that was just released in late July, or the study was released in late July, of um, of thousands of Chinese children, uh, many uh, of them, uh, and, and how there are just e- epidemic now levels of obesity among them, nine over 9,000 children. And this is what they found. This was kind of shocking. Um, 
what was correlated with a higher incidence of obesity in Chinese children was more vigorous exercise, less candy and fast food intake, less frequent snacking, more fruit consumption, and higher parental educational attainment. So the more educated your parents, the more exercise you had, the less candy you ate, the more, less fast food you ate, the more obese these children were. This is the opposite well, this, of what we think. This is the <clears throat> this is the problem with these kind of what they're called observational mm-hmm. studies. I would hypothesize that Chinese intelligent Chinese parents are very nutritionally aware, and they've been they're up to date on the what the conventional wisdom is. So as they have children who start putting on fat, they don't let them eat treats. They get them exercising, they do everything they're supposed to do. It doesn't work because they're missing the point, although getting them off sweets probably helps. And so you have a kind of reverse causality thing, and this is the problem. I've written a lot about these kinds of observational studies and why they're pretty. You don't know if these kids are fatter because they're eating less sweets and they're exercising so much or they're eating less sweets and exercising so much because they're they're predisposed to get fat and their parents are desperately trying to stop it. And because they're Chinese children instead of American children, they're listening to their parents. You know? <laughs> so, so what you're saying is that the issue of the observational studies is that you can't sort of tease apart what is the cause of the obesity because they're not studying it as a controlled study, right. although that uh, earlier Johns Hopkins study I cited was a controlled was study. Was a control. Yeah. I mean, observational studies, there's no the, the most logical way to put it, there's no causal information in, an, uh, in the observation. And in the, what you find when you do these studies is here's an association between mm-hmm. heavier children and less candy, less sweets, more exercise. In fact, one of the places we ran into trouble was because of this, these kinds of studies. For instance, in the 1980s, the sugar industry started pushing sugar as a weight loss product. Because if you look at who eats more or less sugar, you find, or who says they eat more or less sugar, which can be an entirely different thing, and you do these observational studies where you, you, know, you get a cohort of like a thousand people, and you ask them what they eat, and you either just to look immediately what diseases they have, or you follow them for ten years to see what the diseases they get, and whether they get fatter or not. You'll find that the people who say they eat less sugar are fatter than the people who say they eat more. So the sugar industry takes us and says, look, this means sugar is a weight loss drug. We're going to make it a causal effect and say eating less sugar causes people to be heavier, which is logically inane. Um, What what more likely is happening is that people are overweight or obese know they're not supposed to be eating sugar. And so even either they're not because they're overweight, they're already heavy, or they're saying they're not because they know that it's going to look bad if they say they do because pretty much everyone with an IQ over about 65 knows that if they're overweight, they should be staying away from sugar. Are these the same kinds of problems that you find with studies that show an incidence of higher cancer and diabetes, et cetera, with meat consumption? I, exactly. What you find is, and this is you know one of the battles I've been fighting for about 20 years as a science journalist. Um, a lot of studies have come out recently. For instance, the AARP, the American Association for Retired Persons, and the uh, National Cancer Institute have a cohort, a population they've been following of a half million people and retired people. And you look at you ask them what they eat. You do the sit down with them with these food frequency questionnaires. You mail them out if you have 500,000 people, and they report what they eat. And they 
it's almost impossible to fill out these questionnaires and get them right. But the assumption is the all the mistakes and exaggerations and memory problems are going to be averaged out. And then you follow them for 20 years and you find out, lo and behold, the people who have been doing exactly what you told them to do hmm. are healthier. So the people who have been eating less meat and you know less saturated fat and less uh, – you know, sugar or whatever are healthier than the people who who have, and the vegetarians are healthier than the meat eaters. And then you assume that the only difference between them is one group eats more vegetables and the other group eats more meat. And you know, we all know that vegetarians are entirely different than meat eaters. So, how do you explain lower cancer rates or diabetes rates among vegetarians? Well, the question is, it could be all kinds of sociobiological behavioral factors and what the word is they confound these results. Mm. So if, you know, people who consciously choose a vegetarian lifestyle tend to be more health conscious in general than people who don't and they tend to be better educated in their higher socioeconomic class, they have better doctors, they may be healthier to begin with. And as one of my friends put it, it's like these studies are comparing, you know, vegetarians in Berkeley, California, eat at Chez Panisse once a week and go for hikes and buy all their food from green markets to redneck truck drivers from West Virginia. So one Who group might is, be eating meat but also lots of carbs. Everything else. Right. So one group is very health conscious by definition and the other group, unless they're, they're, they've chosen, uh, you know, vegetarian diets for religious reasons, but it's you know, for the most part, these choices are driven by health conscious, you know, ethical, moral beliefs. And the other group, for whatever reason, doesn't care mm. as much. And or may only have access to inexpensive foods and sugary right. so carb-laden foods are less expensive. Exactly. At a socioeconomic thing where people can afford to be vegetarians in one population, they can elsewhere. So the way you test this you know, what these studies do, people talk about them generating hypothesis, generating data. So now you have this hypothesis. You've got this hypothesis. Um, hey, look, vegetarians seem to do better. People who eat more, less animal products in these big random uh, uh, observational studies seem to do better. So now we have that's a hypothesis. Let's test it. Let's randomize people into two groups. And we'll do an experiment. Science is about doing an experiment. So we put them on, you know, one group we put on a high fat, high meat diet, and the other group we put on a <clears throat> lower fat, you know, more animal, vegetable product diet, and let's see who does better and run it out for as long as we can afford to do it. <clears throat> and there have been Excuse just me. a few studies done like that, but there they're have there, been, right? Yeah, but when you do those studies, you find out that in general, the people on, if the people on the high meat diet, high fat diet are avoiding the kind of carbohydrates we started talking about in the beginning of the conversation, they do better. That on appears health to be indicators, obesity, oh, diabetes, yeah, heart all disease, of those. risk factors. That appears, mm -hmm. you know, they just they do better. It's, it's unfortunate if depending on what your beliefs are, but the randomized controlled trials, the experiments, the ones that actually give you causal information, is what randomization does. Is it says let's take you know a few hundred people who have all kinds of different behavioral, you know, beliefs and health consciousness and. Um, <clears throat> socioeconomic status and randomize them into our two groups so that it's all going to smear out as best we can. Mm -hmm. 
And that way, we're, we're only the only thing we're going to change now is the, the actual diet. My guest is award-winning science journalist Gary Taubes, and we're talking about his book, Why We Get Fat and What to Do About It. We had had him on on May 31st in an hour-long interview that was very popular, particularly with our online listeners. We got a lot of comments. It's a highest-rated program on our website. If you want to join in the conversation, if you are confused by the conventional science, if what you're hearing uh, rubs you the wrong way because of what you think um, is true, uh, you know, based on what doctors recommend or many nutritionists recommend, we'd like to take your questions. You can ask Gary Tobbs a question on our Facebook page. Go to facebook.com, search for Uprising Radio. Maybe you're already, uh, you've already clicked like on our uh, page, in which case you can just post a comment instantly and we'll read it out over the air. Comment or question for Gary Tobbs. We'd love to hear from you uh, on this very important issue that affects so many Americans. I want to play for you, Gary, and our listeners, um, the audio of a trailer of a document documentary that's been making some waves, Forks Over Knives, which is, uh, you know, questioning, uh, making the link between diet and all of these diseases we're saying, but then arriving at a very different conclusion than you. This could be the first generation of children in the United States that lives less than its parents. I got two pills I take for my diabetes, then I got one for cholesterol, high blood pressure, and then I take Bieta, which is an injectable. I'm getting really shaky, and I'm sick, and I'm fatigued, and that's when they diagnosed me with hypertension and diabetes. Obesity, diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure costs this country more than $120 billion each year. People are saying, you're crazy. You're a cancer patient. You should be resting. Doctors told me this. When I had the second heart attack, the doctor said, I should prepare for death. Heart disease is an absolutely toothless paper tiger that need never, ever exist. People who were raised in Japan, the Philippines, Korea, China, never had heart disease, prostate cancer, colon cancer, breast cancer, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis. This is the atlas of cancer mortality in China. Virtually, the Western diet was non-existent. They had no animal products. They had no dairy, no meat. We learned that we could turn on and turn off cancer growth just by adjusting the level of intake of that protein. I knew at that point what caused most diseases. Our national authorities are simply excluding this concept in order to protect the status quo. With the Western diet, there are going to be half a million people in this country this year who will have to have the front half of their body divided, their heart exposed. Some people would call that extreme. I know of nothing else in medicine that can come close to what a plant-based diet could do. If you go through life thinking that what happens to you from a health perspective is based on your genes, you're a helpless victim. I reversed the diabetes. The diabetes is not coming back. I just can't understand what it's done to change my life. Diet is so much more important than anybody ever thought. To me, the answer is so simple, it's criminal. And it's just people starting to take responsibility for their health and starting to eat more plant-based foods. It's that simple. And that's the trailer of the documentary Forks Over Knives, implying that uh, knives should go under the folks' knives that you use to cut meat and forks that you might use to pick up uh, plants, broccoli, lettuce, etc., on your plate. Gary Taubes, uh, they, the trailer sounds as though it's a definitive answer that if you just switch to plant-based foods um, and eat less meat, you're going to easily get rid of all of these diseases. Well, this is... Um 
yeah, it's funny. I was thinking before, when you were asking for questions on Facebook, the natural question I get from everyone is, what about the China study? You know, one of the, there's about three, scientists, three researchers whose, uh, whose work is discussed in Forks Over Knives, and the primary basis for this is a study called the China study. It was a huge study done in China, an observational study of the kind we were talking about. And it was done by several groups, a Chinese group, an Oxford group, and then Colin Campbell at Cornell. And Colin Campbell took this and said, look, the data implicates meat consumption. And what they were saying, you know, one of the things in the, in the, the, um, the trailer was, you know, the Chinese, the Japanese, the Vietnamese, the Philippines, the Southeast Asian populations don't get these chronic diseases we get. They didn't have the Western diet. I mean, this is what we've already talked about. And they didn't get these diseases. And one thing they did differently is they ate less meat. Therefore, it's the lack of meat that is the, or the, you know, meat eating causes these diseases. And the observation that I was talking about earlier that not only these people, any population that didn't eat Western diseases didn't get heart disease, didn't eat Western, any population that didn't eat Western diets, didn't have Western lifestyles, didn't get heart disease, obesity, diabetes, cancer, all the things they're talking about. And those populations included populations like the Inuit, populations like the Native Americans of the Great Plains and the pastoralists of Africa that were ex almost exclusively carnivores, meat eaters. So again, this is science. Sometimes when I'm lecturing to researchers on this and I want to piss them off. I say, let's just pretend this is a science for a second. We have a refutation of your hypothesis already. We had populations, you know, like the Kenyans, the Maasai, that didn't get cancer, didn't get heart disease, didn't get obesity, didn't get diabetes, and ate nothing but animal products. The same with the Inuits. The Inuits had the lowest cancer and diabetes rates in the world, and they lived on animal products. So we can't actually implicate animals. And this argument was made 100 years ago because one of the natural things when uh, British colonial and missionary physicians first noticed that the populations they were administering to didn't get cancer, they said, maybe it's because they don't eat meat. This was, you know, early 20th century, and other people would write into the journals and say, yeah, but I'm dealing with, you know, the Native Americans here in the Great Plains, and they eat nothing but meat, and they also don't get cancer. And what's interesting about this China study is that it actually never showed an association between meat-eating and cancer mortality. If you look at the raw data, you can buy it now costs about $200, but you could buy the original study of the China study, and it's you know about 800 pages of just you know table after table mm -hmm. after table. Let's compare this to that and this to that and this to that, and there's no link between animal protein and cancer. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the fundamental again, the argument is, what do these populations all have in common? That's what you look for. What did the Maasai? and the Inuit and the Native Americans of the Great Plains and agrarian populations and these, you know, uh, agrarian East Asia, Southeast Asian populations all have in common that could explain this lack of chronic diseases. And the answer is they didn't eat sugar and they didn't eat refined flour, you know. There is another campaign parallel to uh, Forks Over Knives. And, you know, these campaigns abound, particularly in progressive circles, particularly mm -hmm. among health conscious environmentalists, people who believe that, you know, who want to believe and who, who assert that 
um, a plant-based diet is good for the planet and good for the body. Meatless Mondays is one of these campaigns that list the health benefits one after the other, limit cancer risk. They say hundreds of studies suggest that diets high in fruits and vegetables may reduce cancer risk, reduce heart disease. It says recent data from a Harvard University study found that replacing saturated fat-rich foods, for example, meat and full-fat dairy, with foods that are rich in polyunsaturated fat, for example, vegetables, oils, nuts, and seeds, reduces the risk of heart disease by 19%. And on and on, fight diabetes, curb obesity, live longer, and improve your diet. Um, and then, of course, they, they uh, list the environmental benefits. And I know this is a very important issue for our listeners. Right. It's conventional wisdom among environmentalists and progressive circles that if you reduce your meat consumption, you're going to be healthier and the planet is going to be healthier as well. And I want to you know, bring, bring up this issue um, because the basis of it is that eating meat is also a um, uh, something that produces greenhouse gases. And, you know, how does one reconcile this? Well, this is what, um, you know, let's start with the health benefits first. Everything, all those studies, again, are observational studies. You know, the way I got into this business, I was just a hardcore science writer. I mean, I was fascinated with good and bad science and controversies. I'd done some investigations. I'd written some books on controversial science. I had been mentored, in effect, by very hardcore scientists. The thing that flipped my paradigm, so to speak, is that when you do randomized control trials, when you do an experiment, the meat eaters do better. I mean, and by the meat eaters, I mean, you, you compare, in these studies, you compare like an American Heart Association, low-fat, low-calorie diet with a lot of fruits and vegetables and whole grains to a diet with that's heavy in meat and saturated fat. They do better. That's that's. Have why. there been any studies that show the opposite? No, virtually. I mean, of the several dozen studies that have been done, there may be a couple now that show that they're about the same. Mm -hmm. But heart disease risk factors are what's called metabolic syndrome, always better mm -hmm. on the higher fat, higher animal product diet. Um, in these studies, you know, the, the studies are done poorly. They're they're poorly controlled. These people in nutrition really haven't got a clue how to do good science where you rigorously control variables. And one of my uh, more hubristic goals in life is to try and get them to realize that they have to do good studies. So that's, that's the first issue. All those effects, when they say a study out of Harvard showed saturated fats better than polyunsaturated, that means an observational study where we looked at people and lo and behold, it turns out that the people eat olive oil are healthier than the people who eat butter. That's what they're saying. And yet, you know, for 30, 40 years, we've been taught that butter is evil and olive oil is good. So you're just using olive right. oil to, in effect, select out health-conscious people. Right. And we should remember the wisdom on margarine versus butter is yeah. now turned out around on its head. Eggs are supposed to be better for you than not. Even salt is not as bad for you now as well, I, I actually, studies. One of my you know, famous in this very small pool articles was a piece I did for the journal Science back in 1999. I spent a year looking at the evidence that salt causes hypertension. And it's just terrible. It, was, it basically wasn't there. Hmm. Wow. And I documented how very zealous research, you know, these people, again, when I say they haven't got a clue how to do science, they fall in love with their hypothesis. Hmm. Ah, salt raises blood pressure. And they do study after study. And the studies actually refute their hypothesis, wow. but you could always find, you could select that, you could find the one little piece of evidence 
that supports it and an ocean of evidence that refutes it and say, oh, this, you know, if I pick here, and this is called cherry picking your data. Well, Gary, uh, the issue of what we eat and the principles by which we eat are emotional ones, and I expected emotional reactions. <laughs> uh, I was a vegetarian for nearly 20 years, and one of our uh, listeners, Dennis, on our Facebook page uh, says, Sonali's anti-vegan bias raises its head again. This person, I'm assuming he means you, is not a scientist. Where's his studies? Ref- where are his studies he's referring to? The fact is that a plant-based diet is healthier. The China study is an observational study, but it is true. And then he says, these random studies he's referring to, how long did they last? He says, you can only do it as long as you can afford to. How long is that? Well, that's absolutely true. Um, He's true that the China-based study is an observational study. Um, As I said, you do it as long as you can afford it. So some of them are a year, some of them are two years. They're very poorly done. but what about yeah. the studies that that prove uh, you know that that are that show no uh, risk factors associated with meat eating? How long are those done for? I think uh, that's those are done for a about. year or two. But like I said, one of the things I do in my book is you go back to these popular. What you can do is do sort of environmental experiments. So you can go back to populations that simply didn't eat, you know, plant products, for instance, or populations that didn't. Actually, there were no populations that didn't eat meat. Uh, and you look at the studies of hunter-gatherer populations prior to the, you know, that they survived into the 20th century. If they could eat meat, they did. You know, it was basically the more animals around, the more they ate, the populations that ate the least were the ones that happened to live in environments where they had the least mm-hmm. to eat. Um, there were no naturally occurring vegetarian populations, humans. Um, and I'm not, a, you know, I'm all for it. I wish I had the moral, um, ethical strength to try and do that. I'm not sure I could raise my children that way, though, because I'm not sure it's the healthiest possible mm-hmm. diet when I had children. It came with the obligation to give them or at least try to give them the healthiest possible diet as I saw it. Um, yeah, the argument I'm making again, I'm not I'm – not, it always comes out to be an advocacy for meat eating. I'm not doing that. I'm saying – and the reason my book is called Why We Get Fat is the quality and quantity of the carbohydrates in the diet, the refined carbs and the sugars are the problem. And they're a problem if you're eating a vegan diet. They're a problem if you're eating a vegetarian diet. And they're a problem if you're eating an omnivore or a carnivorous diet. And if you get rid of those, any diet will be healthier. Uh, And the studies that I cited earlier, um, John, the controlled studies uh, were done by Johns Hopkins University uh, scientists. Um, I'm uh, speaking with Gary Tobbs, award-winning science journalist. We're talking about his book, Why We Get Fat and What to Do About It. We're taking your questions on Facebook.com. Search for Uprising Radio and uh, click click on the like button, and then you can post a question to our page, and we'll read it out. We're going to take a short break, uh, and we will hear this week's Rethink Reviews with Jonathan Kim when we come back, part two of our interview. I'm Jonathan Kim, and this is Rethink Reviews, where we take a deeper look at current and past films and how they relate to the world today. Check out this guy. Hey, that one's a pain in the ass. I think he's special or something. <laughs> it's like a thinking or something. <laughs> Okay. 
In the original 1968 film Planet of the Apes, astronauts land on a planet populated by talking, civilized apes, where the languageless humans are the ones treated like dumb animals. The new film Rise of the Planet of the Apes is essentially a spoiler for the original as well as this modernized origin story, since the planet in question is, naturally, Earth. But even though I'd seen the original film and knew that this one would eventually end with an ape victory, I rarely knew what would happen next. And the computer-generated apes, which were created using performance capture technology, are so wonderfully expressive, soulful, and realistic that Rise of the Planet of the Apes ends up being much better than I'd imagined it would be, as well as a revenge fantasy for animal rights activists. The path to primate revolution starts out at a pharmaceutical company where scientist Will Rodman, played by James Franco, is working on a treatment that will cure degenerative brain disorders, like the Alzheimer's eating away at his father, played by John Lithgow. Will is amazed to see that not only does his drug reverse the effects of Alzheimer's, but also increases the intelligence of the chimps the drug is tested on. But when Will's star chimp, Bright Eyes, goes berserk and has to be put down, Will is forced to abandon his research and adopt the baby chimp Bright Eyes left behind. That baby chimp, who's named Caesar and is performed by actor Andy Serkis, eventually grows into an adolescent chimp who displays the heightened intelligence of his mother, inspiring Will to continue his research in secret and use his father as a guinea pig. And, like most teenagers, Caesar is beginning to wonder about who he is and his place in the world, and he's troubled by the realization that he might be some sort of pet, or, at most, a second-class citizen denied the rights of his furless, self-proclaimed masters. After a run-in with a neighbor, Caesar is sent to a primate facility, where he's stung by Will's betrayal and is outraged by the prison-like conditions and the harsh treatment his new captors seem happy to inflict on Caesar and his fellow inmates. So Caesar hatches a plan to break himself and the other apes out of the facility, which becomes a call not just for revolution, but evolution, when Caesar learns how to increase the intelligence of his compatriots. While many see Rise of the Planet of the Apes as slightly silly summer fun, the film deserves a lot of credit for the risks it takes, namely that over half the movie is centered around a character who can't talk in what is, in many ways, a primate coming-of-age story. But Circus is so talented and the performance capture technology is so good that Caesar's emotions play clearly across his entire body, especially his wonderfully expressive face. And the emotion we see most often on Caesar's face is not anger, but a growing indignation and outrage at the way humans treat those they deem lesser than them. For Caesar, human cruelty invalidates any claim of moral or intellectual superiority, a sentiment many humans would agree with. And what's amazing is that even though the culmination of Caesar's revolution will eventually lead to a species demotion for humans, you'll find yourself rooting for Caesar and his scrappy band of primates as they fight for their freedom through the streets of San Francisco. Maybe that's an acknowledgement that after mankind's shabby treatment of the environment and our fellow animals, a little cinematic payback is way overdue. Rise of the Planet of the Apes is rated PG-13 and opens today. I'm Jonathan Kim, and this is a Rethink Review for Uprising. This is Christine Blasdale with your Opportunity Knox public service announcement. The following job offers are available to those looking for work or for those seeking a career change. Computers for Youth is looking to fill two positions in their Los Angeles office. The first is for lead program manager and the second is for senior training manager. The Geffen Playhouse is seeking a communications coordinator. First Congressional Church of Los Angeles is looking for a part-time wedding coordinator. The City Project seeks a community organizer to work with a coalition whose goal is to create a national recreation area in the San Gabriel Mountains and nearby communities. AIDS Walk Los Angeles has a temporary position for outreach representative. Families and Schools is seeking a development manager for their Los Angeles office. The Children's Clinic in Long Beach is seeking a workforce administrative specialist. 
This has been your Opportunity Knox public service announcement. To view these job offers, please visit kpfk.org and click on the banner that reads Opportunity Knox. by Tijuana Panthers, a Long Beach, California-based band. Find out more about them at myspace.com slash Tijuana Panthers. And welcome back to part two of my two-part interview with Gary Tobbs, award-winning science journalist, contributing correspondent for Science Magazine, a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation investigator in health policy research at UC Berkeley's School of Public Health. His earlier book, uh, highly acclaimed, was called Good Calories, Bad Calories, and his new book, Why We Get Fat and What to Do About It. We're taking your questions on Facebook.com. Just uh, click like on Uprising's uh, Uprising Radio's Facebook page and you can post a question and we'll get to just a couple of those um, in a minute. But uh, Gary, I wanted to continue our discussion on the whole issue of the environmental footprint of um, meat, essentially, of, of cattle. And I mean, it's hard to argue that industrial uh, agriculture and in the, in the way in which our industrial food system is set up is a huge uh, you know, uh, source of greenhouse gas emissions. Well, you know, again, I actually don't know if it is or not. Um, it's an interesting issue and conceivably an, and obviously a very important one. But it's one of these things where at least the last time I looked, say about a year ago, I could find three studies on this subject. One came out of the UN and was authored by a, a vegetarian, which may or may not be relevant. Um, there was a counterargument to it from UC Davis uh, agricultural people saying they made some critical mistakes in this study. Um, there was actually an EPA study from a couple years before the UN study that showed, uh, you know, pretty much the opposite of what the UN study showed, and could have been, for all I know, you know, staffed by all Bush appointees who were tools of industry. Um, so it's one of these areas, very, very important, very politicized. And yet, in what area of the world do we buy one government study as the Bible? And what happens here is people, there's always, you know, there's always been a, a kind of, you know, pretty active anti-meat uh, uh, movement in, in the United States, actually worldwide. There's a lot of people who, for very good reasons, don't believe we should be eating animals or abusing them for our, our benefit. And um, so what you get is one study comes out and everybody pounces on it and says this must be true. And in any other area of government, and just speaking as a journalist and an investigative journalist, you know, as a policy, just because a government organization says something, I am not going to believe it. Mm -hmm. So it could indeed be true. I'm not saying it's – I'm not refuting it. I'm just saying I want to see a lot more evidence. I want to see evidence by unbiased individuals and people who have nothing to gain or lose, you know, 
analyses. But, but, but isn't it true that when we raise cattle in the way in which conventionally it is done, there is the overuse of antibiotics, the overuse of uh, you know feeding the animals themselves uh, things that they're not naturally meant to eat, grains or even other animals. Uh, oh, yeah, no, and the, the factory of- farming perpetrates some horrible crimes on these animals. And is it even and, clear that that meat is good for Well, people? that's that's where it gets tricky, okay? Because again, I'm arguing that, you know, in my work and what I know best about, where I'm most comfortable is that the problem is the kind of carbohydrates we consume and that people should stay away from them. If you're overweight, obese, diabetic, um, you may not actually do well on a vegetarian diet. It may not be enough. So you may have to switch to a diet that's mostly animal products if you want to be lean and healthy. Raising children, that might be the healthiest diet. Most people can't afford to eat. You know, I live in Berkeley, California, I can, and I'm nicely ensconced in the middle class. I, there are you know, butcher shops all around me that sell humanely raised and slaughtered meat that's grass-fed, and I'm willing to spend the extra money on it. But I'm not going to tell, you know, a, a single mother, working mother of five that if she doesn't eat, you know, grass-raised beef, she shouldn't feed her kids meat. Um, it's just there are a lot of other issues that people aren't concerned about. So the the antibiotics, the you know, the the grain-fed stuff is interesting because we were, you know, I have a, there's a, online there's a book about markets uh, that was written in the turn of the early years of the 20th century and it was basically what markets in New York and Boston sell and they're talking about the different animals and vegetables and fruit that's available and they make the point then that most of the corn raised in America at the end of the 19th century was used to feed cattle, to fatten up cattle. That's what we did, you know, before we had the current diabetes and obesity epidemic. So it may or may not be good for us but I would guess that it's much less of a factor than eating and drinking the sugar. Now, and there there have been um, a lot of there's a lot of question about fiber. Whenever we talk about plant based diet, you know, the lack of fiber in our diets is linked to by some studies to cancer, et cetera. And and you know, apparently meat doesn't have enough fiber, or does it? Well, no, meat doesn't have fiber. Here, let me give you a little bit of history on the fiber hypothesis. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things I learned about when I was writing uh, Good Calories, Bad Calories. Uh, in the 1950s and early 1960s, a British researcher named Peter Cleave, he was actually a naval researcher, came out with uh, collected research showing this basically diseases of civilization, disease of Western diets problem um, by writing to hospitals all around the world and saying, tell me what, you know, your inpatient records, what diseases you've gotten and looking at what they do or don't eat. And he implicated sugar and refined carbs. He called it the saccharine disease hypothesis. And... A fellow named Dennis Burkett recently returned from Africa where he had gotten famous identifying a type of cancer that's caused by virus came along and Burkett was looking for something new to do and Sir Richard Dahl, the most famous British epidemiologist who was famous already for linking cancer to lung cancer said you should meet this guy Cleve and read his book. There's a lot of genius in this idea that refined carbs and sugars cause all these diseases. So Burkett met Cleve and decided this is really interesting, but you can't get a lot of headway, as he said, telling people to eat less sugar and less starch and drink less beer. But So he decided that it wasn't the presence of refined sugar and flour in the diet that caused these diseases. It was the absence of fiber, that when you refine the carbs, 
you remove the fiber from the diet. And so that leads to the question, are there good grains versus bad grains? Yeah. Is whole grains better for you? Which is one of the questions on our Facebook page versus refined grains. Yeah. And one of the interesting things was, um, you know, when you remove the fiber, when you refine the grain, what you do is you make it a lot easier to digest and you speed up the digestion. So the impact of these substances, as Cleve pointed out, was not sort of how much you're eating, but how quickly they hit your pancreas or your liver or whatever. So it's like I can lean on you slowly for 15 minutes and apply 50 pounds of pressure and it's not going to do any harm. But if I apply that 50 pounds of pressure in two seconds by punching you, you know, we got damage. And that's what he was saying happens mm. with these refined carbs. So Burkett comes along and he basically takes the exact same evidence that Cleve has and turns it into this photographic negative where he says instead of the president's refined carbs and sugars, it's the absence of fiber. And Burkett's theory is accepted almost instantaneously because you can tell people to eat less fat and more fiber. It's hard to tell them to eat less fat and less carbs because then you're telling them just to eat less. Nobody wants to hear that. And the funny thing is Burkett had been a missionary physician in Ethiopia, um, in um, Uganda, and his partner – <clears throat> Hugh Trow had been a missionary physician in Kenya, and they had dealt with these pastoralists I'm talking about, like mm. the Maasai, who had no fiber in their diet and no chronic diseases. So there's your refutation. There were populations, the Inuit, the Maasai, the Native Americans of the Great Plains, who didn't consume fiber. And they also didn't have these same diseases. And we've done a lot of randomized controlled trials with uh, fruits and vegetables and fiber and like colon cancer, colon polyps, and they all come up negative. And actually, before Sir Richard Dahl died in about 2003, I interviewed him, and he said, yeah, the only thing fiber demonstratively cures or prevents is constipation. Mm. And Burkett, interesting enough, was obsessed with constipation. It was actually hard to write the section about Burkett without trying to Mm -hmm. make fun of him a little bit because he would do transit studies with his family, for instance, where he would have them eat foods and, you know, little beads in the food and then time when they came out. And you, you get the idea. Right. Yeah. Uh, there's the issue of dietary fat intake. Um, you go to the supermarket, you try to find natural meats that are not processed. And in fact, I do want to <clears> ask you about the issue of processing as well, because now you find meats that are uncured without nitrates that are supposed to be healthier for you, etc. Um, but also the issue of finding meats with just sort of a normal amount of fat in them. Meats have been stripped of their fats. All you can find is lean meats. And even some people who say that the, this low-carb diet is good, they say low-carb with lean meats. So what's the, what's the question on well, lean Well, this is meats? one of the hangovers, and this is where it helped to have the kind of training I had as a science journalist. Um, this idea that a low-fat diet is a healthy diet is just wrong, just based on bad science. And you could actually make the argument, I do, that the higher the fat in the diet, again, remember that we're, we're blaming the diseases on the refined carbs and sugars and easily digestible carbs like potatoes, starches. Um, once you remove those, you make the argument that the higher the fat in the diet, the better. Actually, you know, what we're trying to do, again, the argument I make is that the fundamental problem here is we overstimulate the hormone insulin, and insulin is so uh, integral to all these bodily processes, one of which is fat accumulation. Then when you overstimulate insulin, you accumulate too much fat, you start doing all kinds of damage throughout the body, and you want to keep insulin levels as low as possible. 
And the way you do that is actually eating high-fat foods because protein mm. also stimulates insulin. So one of the ways people respond to this science incorrectly is they go, okay, well, we eat low-carb and low-fat. I'm going to kind of hedge my bets. I'm going to buy into the low-fat stuff, but I'm also going to buy into this carb argument because it makes sense. And then I'm eating a high-protein diet. And high-protein diets, I mean, first, protein does stimulate some insulin secretion. It's not as bad as the carbs. But they could be actually, um, yeah, they could have uh, uh, negative side effects other than that. So we should actually, you know, it's it's almost impossible to say this. And one of the obstacles to getting these ideas accepted is that fat is not bad for you and could actually be good for you, including saturated fat. Hmm. You know, and that the fact that we've been arguing that there's been bad science and smoke arguing otherwise for the past 40 years doesn't mean that there was actually fire where that smoke was. And again, when you do these randomized controlled trials, these experiments, people on the higher fat diets do better. And it's easy to link dietary fat to body fat. Well, it sounds <laughs> bad. Sound, it right. just sounds bad. And then if you've been eating a low-fat diet for years, as we all did while we were getting fatter... <laughs> um, it's hard to switch over to eating fat. And it's sort of, there's something kind of gross about it. You know, it's like you don't like the way, the same way, um, you know, I can't imagine now becoming a vegetarian. People who are vegetarians have trouble imagining, A, eating meat again. It just takes sure. on all this heart. And then B, eating fatty meat. And yet the argument is, is the fatty meat is what you should be eating. The good news is if you go to the supermarkets and at least when we get to hamburger meat, the fatter the meat, the cheaper it is. So... Mm. For, now. For uh, now. My guest is science uh, journalist Gary Taubes on his book, Why We Get Fat and What to Do About It. Now, uh, one question that comes up often is, um, in addition to how the studies are done, observational versus controlled studies, is who funds the studies? And the meat industry has not been a very, uh, let's just put it kindly, that they haven't been the most ethical uh, industry. <laughs> uh, and, you know, the, everybody remembers when Oprah said she would never eat a hamburger. She was sued by the uh, meat right. industry. And it's, you know, we sort of want to demonize the meat industry. Well, we want to demonize every industry. <laughs> what I find fascinating so, is... So does it matter? I mean, do they fund studies? And do you, when you do a science, when you look at the science, do you look at who's funding the studies? Um, yeah, I do. But there's a real fundamental problem here because what happens is if your viewpoint is counter to the conventional wisdom, it's very difficult to get funding from the National Institutes of Health, which is the usual organization mm -hmm. that funds it. So, And they've had a very, um, uh, you know, uh, kind of locked-in dogma that they've been pushing for the past 30, 40 years. It's anti-salt, anti-fat. And so if you're critical or skeptical of that, you don't get funding. So now you have to look. You've got interesting research you want to do. You've got to look for it. Like the guy who pushed the sugar hypothesis, John Yudkin, in the 70s, there was a, the fat hypothesis, fat causes heart disease, was uh, you know, uh, going right up against the idea that sugar caused heart disease. And the fat idea was a U.S. idea and the sugar idea was a British idea and the fat idea won. So Yudkin couldn't get funded. So who does he turn to? Well, who stands to benefit from um, studies implicating sugar and heart disease, the artificial sweetener industry. Wow. So okay. Yudkin turns to the artificial sweetener industry to get money to do his research because he can get it from them. And now people say, look who funds him. So again, you don't know what's cause and what's effect. I've actually talked to the media, you know, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. I've lectured to them three or four times and their scientific committee. And I say there are studies that should be done 
would you guys fund them? And they're not interested. All mm-hmm. they're interested in funding are research that helps them uh, their products conform better with the dietary guidelines. Mm. So the USDA says this is a healthy diet. You should eat less fat, less saturated fat, and they fund research to how to basically increase the protein content, decrease the fat and saturated fat content in animals. So, Gary Tobbs, you're here in Los Angeles to speak at the Ancestral Health uh, Symposium happening at UCLA today and tomorrow. And this is an, it's, it's me called the Woodstock of Evolutionary Medicine. A lot of doctors and scientists and journalists like yourself. In fact, you're going to be speaking, I understand, on the connection between sugar and cancer. Uh, yeah, yeah. This was something I finally got a chance to write about in a New York Times uh, t- uh, magazine article back in April. Um, It's crazy, right? Sugar causes cancer. I would never have said that in a million years. Um, You look at the research again. There's a lot of basis of the street. The first one is that these populations that didn't eat Western diets didn't get cancer. Okay, cancer was non-existent and isolated. You know, African, South America, anywhere in the world you went, if you didn't eat a Western diet, you didn't get cancer. So then the question is, what aspect of the Western diet is this? And this is kind of conventional wisdom now. You know, Michael Pollan talks about it in his books. Um, the big research reports come out. So the conventional wisdom as well as these populations go through the nutrition transition, they get sedentary. And sedentary behavior causes us to get cancer. So you and I sitting here right now are engaging in a carcinogenic activity by that logic. The reason they implicate sedentary behavior is because obesity and diabetes are linked to higher rates of cancer. Um, And it turns out that when you're obese and diabetic, that means type 2 diabetic, you're insulin resistant. You're resistant to the hormone insulin, so you have to secrete more insulin in response to the carbs in your diet. And then as you secrete more insulin, insulin actually works to promote tumor growth. And it does it along with a hormone called insulin-like growth factor that um, promotes tumor growth. And it's arguably the case that if you don't have enough insulin and insulin-like growth factor, you won't get tumors. So then you link this to the you know, the historical evidence I was just talking about that populations didn't have this. And you just end up with this idea that whatever environmental dietary factor that causes insulin and IGF is a initials for insulin-like growth factor, for those to go up, that's what promotes cancer. And that's why we have so much cancer in modern civilizations. And there's a lot of evidence now that sugars by sucrose and high fructose corn syrup are the fundamental cause of this condition called insulin resistance. So there's a three steps and there's leaps between them, but that you can make a pretty compelling argument as I think I did in the Times Magazine article. So the Ancestral Health Symposium, the term ancestral health is referring to this sort of growing movement of people who um, want to base current diets on uh, what's called a sort of paleolithic diet, the, right. the, the diet that human beings for something like, what, 99% of our evolutionary existence right. subsisted on, the hunter-gatherer diet. Um, it, so because we sort of evolved to be able to deal with whatever was out there, which was back uh, for the majority of our existence, animals, um, and, and I suppose some vegetables or berries or nuts or whatever, uh, that only in the last moment of our evolutionary existence have we introduced grains, sugars, our bodies can't handle it. That's the sort of basic theory? That's the basic theory, yeah. So the idea is for about two million years we subsisted on, you know, what animals we could hunt, tubers that we could dig up, uh, you know, some fruits and berries in season and honey and... and But tubers and honey are carbs? 
tubers in honey are carbs, but they're carbs that are very hard. To, the tubers are carbs that are very high to digest, and the honey was something you got only sporadically mm-hmm. and at great price. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it's not that we didn't eat these foods at all, though some populations, as I said, didn't. Um, but that these are the foods, and anything, so there's this, you know, whatever you've added to that in modern times. So agriculture comes along, and one of the people speaking at this conference is Mark Nathan Cohen, who wrote a brilliant book about 15 years ago, demonstrating how with the introduction of agriculture, um, human populations got less healthy. Even 10,000 years ago, it wasn't a boon, it was actually a deficit. Um, and then you go from agriculture to the refinement of the product. So that you add grains to these diets, that's bad. Then you refine the grains, you refine the sugars, and now you have real problems. And that the healthiest possible diet is you know, the diet that's closest to this one that we evolved to eat. I have questions about whether or not you can actually establish what that is. Mm, right. You know, because obviously <laughs> it's not much history or historical document. Yeah, no history. And a lot of, you know, they would have differed dramatically from pop, you know, region of the world to region of the world would have Different sure. dramatically with ice ages and, you know, as the ice Whether you live in the tropics versus in Alaska. Yeah, exactly. But so the argument I'm making is you get rid of the foods we didn't evolve to eat. Mm-hmm. And those are mostly, you know, again, the refined carbs and sugars and um, people throwing vegetable oils, the polyunsaturated fats that we're now being told we should eat more and more of and probably for good reason, although I'm less uh, certain about that than they are and... You know, and then you eat instead of eating rice and potatoes. If you want carbs, you eat sweet potatoes because they're a tuber that come out of the ground. They have a lot more good things, you know. But it's it makes inherent sense. It's always made inherent sense. Just eat the diet we as close as you can to the diet we evolved to eat. Well, Gary Tobbs, uh, it's uh, always a pleasure to have you on. And uh, a lot of the studies that we were talking that that you based your work on, of course, cited in your book. It's right. heavily footnoted, and I uh, recommend for people who have questions about uh, what you've been saying to to check out the book. Uh, do you have a website you'd like to give out? Oh, I do. It's www.garytaubs.com. And your last name is spelled T-A-U-B-E-S www.garytobbs.com. My guest has been award-winning science journalist Gary Tobbs, and we've been talking about his book, Why We Get Fat and What to Do About It. For Sonali Subversive Thought for the Day, Thomas Henry Huxley said, science is simply common sense at its best, that is rigidly accurate in observation and merciless to fallacy in logic. That's Huxley. That's Sonali Subversive Thought for the Day. Thanks so much, Gary. Thank you. You've been listening to Uprising. Martina Steiner is our assistant producer, Laura Mann is our intern Tamika Miller is our engineer you can order a copy of today's show at 1-800-735-0230 our website is uprisingradio.org I'm your host and producer Sonali Kohatkar thanks so much for listening have a wonderful weekend I'll see you Monday at 8